This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. But today we're doing something a little different. Yes, we are. So today is our inaugural... We were thinking of working titles for what this is. It's kind of a spin-off episode. It's a little bit more freestyle. Um, should we explain the concept first? So basically, we both have a idea. Yeah. So, for example, this week it's Golden Age. Mm-hmm. And we need to take that and go in different directions. Yeah, so we have... Uh, theme like golden ages and then we do our own research and then present said research to each other and uh, when you know it it's only when we sat down to record that we were like what are we calling this so i wanted to call it a enter the rabbit hole mini-sode like i'm not sold on my name i just thought about it five minutes ago and it's two ways about it (laughs) yes (laughs) which sounds like an 80s sitcom, I'm aware. Mm, it definitely, the the trailer for it should have both of us wearing, like, sporting mullets and wearing, like, button-up shirts. Yeah, and back-to-back, and Standing back-to-back, mm-hmm, like, shaking our heads, like, what is this about? Um, so, mini-sode, I, I thought maybe mini-show mini big ideas, because if we do another, because golden ages are kind of like a big idea. It's a big sure, theme. Sure, That sounds like a Disney channel. It does. <laughs> and it's also very wordy. Do you have, do we have another one that we can pitch at the listeners? You know I don't do well under pressure. Give me a working title right now. Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> time apart. Time, time apart? I don't know. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> Why would you do this to me? Now I look like an idiot. No, no. You're doing great. Uh, so, so far we've got mini-sode, mini-show, keep it together, Palmer, mini-show, big ideas, and two ways about it. So why don't you get in touch with us via social media? You didn't like Time Apart. Oh, oh, you were being serious. No, I was I don't know. Uh, I guess the fourth option is Time Apart. No, please don't. Okay, so just the three options then, and you can get in touch with us uh, on social media at... At ETRH the pod. Yeah, and uh, you can also email us on etrhthepod at gmail.com. So, today we're going to be talking about a couple of different golden ages, aren't we? Initially, we kind of went in a similar direction to each other. Your golden age is... The Islamic golden age. Mm-hmm. And I had thought about doing... Uh, the Mayan Golden Age. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, ah, that's really similar. Why don't we just go in like completely different directions? So mine is the Golden Age of Hollywood, which is kind of funny to me because I don't even really like movies that much <laughs> or Hollywood. Yes, I was surprised that you landed on that one. Whereas I am a strong, proud Muslim man. So mm-hmm. it was obvious that I was going to do the Age of Islam. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, not uh, any of those things. I mean, I am a man. I guess I'm reasonably proud. And strong. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, um, no but, problem. But not a member of the Muslim faith. So we 
did a little verbal paper, scissors, stones before we started recording, and it looks like I'm up first. Sure are, baby. Wow me. Okay, so Alicia and the listeners at home, uh, why don't you guys strap in and get ready for some facts to be poured in your ears. Your ear holes. Yeah. Okay, so before we start, had you heard anything about the Islamic Golden Age? Um, I don't know about Golden Age. I know... So I took a couple courses on Islam when I was in university, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I lived in Spain at the time, it was focused on Islam in the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And we focused a lot on the advancements they brought to Europe, basically. And, you know, there's there's lots of things that I think a lot of people know, like, you know, the number zero is something that was created by... Um, Islamic scholars. Yeah. Um, they had a lot of medical science, a sure. lot of astrology, I believe. Basically, like, science is a huge part of um, their faith in that time period. Yeah. I think what we're going to be covering today is essentially, if you think about something that you originally thought was invented or pioneered by European scholars during the Renaissance period. <laughs> Stolen! Yeah, it turns out that uh, other people got there first. So I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase here, but the Islamic Golden Age uh, essentially was a period of rapid consolidation and expansion in the fields of science, medicine, philosophy, mathematics, and more that took place in what was then considered the hub of the Islamic world. Like most Golden Ages, exact dates are hard to place, but many resources agree that this period ran from as early as the eighth to the thirteenth century CE. Some people base the beginning of the birth uh, of the Golden Age on the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. It is difficult to have an Islamic Golden Age without Islam, so that makes sense. Others say that the kickoff point was 200 years later at the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate under Hudan al-Rashid and uh, the founding of Baghdad. So just be prepared. There are going to be a lot of names in this episode that are going to be difficult for me to say. And I am, I'm going to try my best not to butcher them. Had you heard of the Abbasid Caliphate before? Yes. Yeah. Um, anything that you knew about them prior to the episode? Um, again, like, I studied a lot of different caliphates in school. I think the Abbasid Caliphate was a period of ret- rapid expansion across, like, I want to say North Africa. Yeah. Um, and then I think they may have started going into the Iberian Peninsula, but I'm not sure. No, you're absolutely right. and. Do you do you happen to remember what a caliphate is? So a caliphate is run by a caliph. Yeah. Who is like uh, kind of like a religious leader and a like military leader, right? Yes, the way that we would probably term it because we're we're talking essentially about the Islamic or the Islamicate empire and so we could kind of think as of a, a caliph as an emperor. However, the exact translation is successor. So, although to this day... So there are, if I remember correctly, part of the problem with Sunnis and Shiites is that they believe there is a different caliphate or successor to Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And they each believe that they have the wrong successor and they have the right successor. Yes, and this specifically focuses on the founding of Islam Mm -hmm. after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. Basically, the first person who is supposed to secede him. Yeah, and uh, I should 
up front, I, I do not know a lot about the Muslim faith in general, and I knew even less at the beginning of this episode when we started writing. However, my understanding is that one line of secession was uh, Muhammad's brother-in-law. And the one was his son in, son-in-law, I want to say, or son? Yeah. Okay. Or, or cousin. Oh, Lord. Okay. Well, again, neither of us are Muslim scholars, but the point is that it was an object of contention, and it, it's still an object of contention to this day. Maybe one way of thinking of it for uh, people in the UK, for example, is it's kind of like that Protestant-Catholic divide. To outsiders, it might seem relatively arbitrary or kind of even silly to an outsider, but to people who are in the middle of it, it's incredibly important. Life or death. Yeah, exactly, stuff. So, but that specifically focuses on the beginning of Islam after the death of Muhammad, and then kind of smooths out a little bit so we we can plot these exact caliphates after the the first hundred years or so back to when the islamic golden age started and when it ended so some people say that it started with the abbasid caliphate uh generally people seem to agree that it ended in the 1200s when Baghdad was destroyed, but others will point to the Christian uh, Reconquista of the Emirate of Granada in Al-Andulus, the Iberian Peninsula, in 1492 is the actual end point. So the point, I guess, when the Christians reclaimed that mm-hmm. part of Spain for themselves. Interestingly, fun fact here, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, before the Reconquista, Jews and some Christians had a much better life than under Christian rulers. Yeah, we're we're gonna see quite a lot of that throughout this entire episode, and we're gonna be we're gonna be tackling some misinformed ideas that are still held pretty strongly in the West to this day. Uh, also, so- uh, sorry, quick quick other fact, Spanish fact here. Um, any Spanish word or most Spanish words that begin with al is actually a loan word from Arabic. Oh, yeah, and it's the same in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see a word that begins with al, A-L, then there's a very good chance that it has its roots in Arabic. So, yeah, just keep that in the back of your mind. So, the Islamic Golden Age and the Islamic Empire are two separate ideas, but knowledge of one helps to understand the other. By the mid-700s, the Islamic Empire stretched throughout the Middle East and into Europe, so the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and Portugal, down through North Africa, went all the way to the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, and then went back up as far as Pakistan and the Indus River, and as far north as Kazakhstan and the Aral Sea. So as such, it covered a massive geographical region and was home to numerous peoples, languages, and cultures. So when they talk about the Islamic Empire, it, you know, it really was. It covered a, a huge amount of land. Were you aware that they had been in charge of this amount of territory at one point in time? Well, yeah. And, you know, it's not that surprising if you look at the numbers of people who follow the Islamic faith today. 25% of the world uh, is Muslim. And again, like, I can still kind of see the maps in my head of the different caliphates and, like, their stretch across, um, like, North Africa up into Europe. And they go pretty far. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah, it really is. 
Let's start off by talking about the House of Wisdom. Sounds pretty cool, right? It sounds like something out of like a fantasy novel or yeah, and and it kind of it kind of works that way in, in a certain sense as well. So, also known as Bait al Hima, this building was built in the eighth century under the rule of then Caliph Hurran al Rashid. One of the main goals of this building uh, was to translate important texts from other regions, including works from the Greek, Roman, Persian, Chinese, Indian, Egyptian, and Phoenician civilizations. Many of these included ancient Greek texts by authors such as Plato, Aristotle, and Ptolemy. Although it would be a mistake to think of the Islamic Empire as a strictly theological entity, part of the rationale behind finding and recruiting such a wide array of texts was based on one of the Quran's core tenets, prizing knowledge for its own sake. From what I remember, again, a long time ago, the Greek texts were not usually translated by European scholars. They were mm. actually translated by Islamic scholars and Muslim scholars, and then European scholars went to into like the caliphate to get those translations. Yeah, exactly. And and there's this really beautiful idea at play here. You've got these two vastly different cultures that are interacting with one another just to share knowledge and ideas, because of course we're talking about an era before the internet, but after printed texts where, you know, you essentially have lending libraries that are kind of lending these these items back and forth. They, uh, so they were able to do all of this translation because the caliphate had acquired and built upon the knowledge of papermaking from the Chinese after defeating the Chinese forces of the Tang Dynasty in 751 CE. Many people will say that paper is a Chinese invention, although I think that may be predated by uh, the Egyptians when the Egyptians would write things on papyrus. I guess it depends on your definition of, of what constitutes paper. Yeah, I think they are different, but I think that it's the same goal, right? Like using plant matter to create like a yeah. paper. And of. so instead of having to chisel things into stone or etch things into clay tablets you you then have a lot more versatility and they're obviously a lot cheaper and a lot more transportable uh, so the the islamic empire built on this technology and by including starch into the recipe they they produced like uh, much more durable material and just as an aside when you think of ancient chinese texts like oracle bones, even the way that Chinese text is written to this day, Chinese calligraphy is all about brushwork, right? Whereas when you see written Arabic, it can be written with reeds, like simple pencils dipped in ink, because it's more sturdy. It's not going to it's not going to go straight through the paper. Oh, okay. So the, they used the brushes because they didn't have starch. Yeah. And so it was gentler on the paper, but because they like because in the caliphate they had stronger paper, they were able to just write on it. Yeah, so I think it's kind of astonishing that that those two iconic styles of typography, you know, you think of like the Chinese brushwork and then you think of like the Ar Arabic calligraphy, those only exist because of the that improvement on technology. I, I find it that, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. 
So soon after, paper mills sprouted up across the Islamic Empire. After al-Rashid died in 809 CE, his son al-Mamun became the new caliph. Under his patronage, the House of Wisdom greatly expanded its purview to include multiple other disciplines. During his reign from 813 to 833 CE, al-Mamun also made a concerted effort to recruit famous scholars, and those working at the House of Wisdom included Muslims, Jews, and Christians. So when you were talking earlier about how Jews and Christians experienced a better life under the Islamic Empire in Iberia than they did under the Christians who followed them, there is you're going to see a trend here. Yeah, so basically because the, those three religions believe in the same God, um, Muslims just believe that they have the, the newest text and therefore the truest text. Yeah. They were actually taxed less than people who believed in other gods. Yeah. So if you didn't follow like the Judeo-Christian Islamic God, then you were seen as less than mm-hmm. and so had higher taxes and didn't and had more regulations on like where you could move and everything like that. Whereas if you were Jewish or Christian, you had access to better housing and and just a better living condition. Yeah, although it is important to point out as well, we're talking specifically about the treatment of Christians, Jews, I guess more secular people or people of other cultures or other faiths under the Abbasid Caliphate. The Abbasids took over from the Amayyads, who they they essentially wiped out in a bloody revolt. And the Amayyads were a little bit less woke. They they so they still welcomed non they they kind of placed arabs above non-arabs in everyday life and so they still welcomed non-arabs into the islamic empire however uh they would do things like uh make them dress differently to kind of point out their identity as you said they were also taxed higher as well so they were essentially treated as second class citizens i mean yeah still the the jews and the christians under the abbasid caliphate were still treated as second-class citizens, but it was better than third-class citizens. I guess, yeah. I mean, everyone wants to be in first-class, right? That's definitely, um, you know, that's that's the sure, dream. But it's the smallest class, let's be honest. Yeah, but they do have oh, they've got so Free much champagne. more... Yeah, so much more leg room. They've got the little TVs that flip up and in, into, into the chair. Or the chairs that turn into beds. And yeah, somebody's always offering you, like, you know... Do you, do you need another drink? You're not waiting for the trolley to come past. <sighs> That's the dream. Anyway, back to the Abbasid Caliphate. So, um, all of this, unfortunately, uh, the uh, all the translation of texts in the House of Wisdom came to an end uh, in 1258 when the Mongols, led by, uh, I, I believe it's pronounced Genghis Khan nowadays. That, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's changed from Genghis Khan to Genghis Khan. Yeah, we've got it wrong all along. So uh, the Mongols, led by Genghis Khan's grandson, Hulain, sacked Baghdad. They slaughtered thousands of citizens, including the last Abbasid caliph, al-Mustusam, and uh, the precious contents of the House of Wisdom were thrown into the River Tigris. Isn't that the way it always goes? Is like somebody sacks like this jewel of a city and then doesn't take the information for themselves. They're like, nah, just just burn it. 
Yeah, and I think that's what makes me angrier. Look, Mongols gonna Mongol, all right? Like they, everyone knows they're they're a fan of a horde, and they enjoy sacking cities and you know raping and pillaging as they go. That's their thing. But it's just you know thousands of years of combined knowledge from various different cultures that have been translated into a bunch of different languages, and you're like. Oh, paper no good. Let's set fire to. Burn, burn, burn. In river go. Is probably what they said. Oh, yeah. Word for word. Yeah. And that's just, well, that that's just uncalled for. So, um, Alicia, do you like maths? Yes. Okay. I think it's all right. Yeah. I think I, it's nice because there's a solution. I absolutely hated uh, maths at school. And I... It's the only time in my life that I would get, like, a boredom erection in class. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Way to throw that in. I know, I know, just out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, it's not even... Uh, we, we didn't have, like, an attractive teacher or anything, but I would be so bored uh, just sat in math class after lunch that, like, whoop, out of nowhere. And then I would be, you know, kind of panicking, like, whoa, how do I make this go down? Um yeah, being a teenager is great, isn't it? I Yeah, you know, at times I think, wow, women have it rough. Uh, and it's true, they do. But at least we don't get visibly aroused in yeah. random situations. Tuck it under the belt buckle and away you go. So uh, back to maths. One of the scholars of the House of Wisdom and beneficiaries of Caliph al-Mamun was a man named Abu Jafar Muhammad ibn Musa al-Karizmi. Karizmi? Wow. Kar- <laughs> Kfarizmi. Kfarizmi is what I'm sticking with. Al Kfarizmi. Nope. Al Kfarizmi. Nope. Al Kfarizmi. Al Kfarizmi. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll be referring to him as Al Kfarizmi. Born in 786 CE, Al Kfarizmi was a writer, scientist, astronomer, geographer, and mathematician. Amongst his many works, Al Kfarizmi wrote two very important treaties. The first was titled Al-Kitab al-Maktasar fi Hisab al-Jabar wal-Makabala, or The Compendious Book on Calculation by Completion and Balancing. You might recognize the term al-Jabar, because al-Kharizmi helped lay out our modern understanding of... Oh, I was waiting for you to jump oh, in. Oh, algebra! Yeah, there you go. So you, so you did recognize it. Did you know that... The, Algebra is from yeah yeah the golden age of Islam. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't, I didn't know it was the golden age of Islam, but I did know that it was. Yeah, so in a sense, I have the Islamic empire and the House of Wisdom to thank for my mystery. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't need to bring that up again. <laughs> yeah, so drawing on the work of Greek, Hindu, and Babylonian texts, Al Khwarizmi created new techniques and formulae for mathematics. Rather than being designed for purely theoretical use, he envisioned these works as, quote, what is easiest and most useful, such as men constantly require in cases of inheritance, legacies, partition, lawsuits, and trade, and in all their dealings with one another, or where the measuring of lands, the digging of canals, geometrical computations, and other objects of various sorts and kinds are concerned. Ha, so take that, teenagers. Algebra is useful. Yeah, I mean, like... You know, when your math teacher told you, like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. Like, you were wrong. 
you were wrong, Mr. McPherson. You were wrong, wrong, wrongy wrong. But if you didn't have a calculator in your pocket, or if calculators hadn't been invented yeah. yet, yeah. then this would be hella useful. So he also produced works using Hindu numerals, which gave rise to the numbers that we still use in the West today, and produced the earliest written example of zero as a placeholder. So you were absolutely right. They, um, these uh, Islamic scholars gave us the number zero, and they also gave us the numbers that we still use today. So you can thank them if you don't like using Roman numerals, or if, like me, you almost give yourself a brain aneurysm trying to read the date that things were made in Roman numerals, there you go. Thank you, Muslim scholars. So uh, Al-Khwarizmi also improved on the work of previous scholars by helping to calculate the circumference of the earth. In his book Kitab Surat Al-Ard, or The Image of the Earth, he outlined the coordinates of 2,400 known locations around the globe. This work helped improve on the Islamic world's understanding of the size of different regions across Africa, Asia, and the Mediterranean. So they, they helped create maps that they kind of understood that a lot of the world is sea, a lot of the world is ocean. So maps prior to that just had a whole bunch of land around about the Mediterranean and the Middle East, and then just little tiny bodies of water. They thought the Mediterranean Sea was tiny. And so he helped give them a much more accurate idea. He also, I don't think this was him, but I think this might have been some of his peers. They helped calculate the circumference of the globe and their calculation is only, I think, maybe like 40 or a couple of hundred kilometers off of our our modern like calculation, our accurate calculation of the circumference of the globe. Uh, so it, it's just staggering that they were able to do this. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I mean, I'm sure most of you have seen the, um, oh Lord, I just forgot his name, Cosmos producer Carl Sagan yes. um, in his bit about how uh, the Egyptians have always known that the world was round and how they placed two pillars in order to look at the length of the shadows at the same time. Um, but yeah, knowing... I, I mean, I couldn't figure out the mm -hmm. circumference of the Earth. Yeah, they, they were able to work out one degree of the globe by going to two separate locations, and then they kind of extrapolated from that to, to get their readings. Um, and it's interesting that you should mention Carl Sagan. Neil deGrasse Tyson also does, I think, several different lectures where he talks about these ancient scholars, and he is like a real proponent of their work. However, I I didn't include him as a source in today's episode because some of the comments underneath, people were getting really, really angry at what he had said. And I couldn't really, again, I'm not a Muslim scholar, so I couldn't really verify the veracity of what he was saying with enough certainty that I'd want to include him as a source. But uh, yeah, he's also like... He's like an Islamicate Empire stan, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right, so I'm going to tell you now about the uh, the Book of Ingenious Devices. Ooh. Yeah. If I were to mention the name The Book of Tricks, you'd probably think I was talking about something I bought out of a greeting card shop for my 12-year-old nephew. Mm, definitely. That or like... Uh, a book that seems really innocuous in like an 80s movie, but turns out to like, you know, I don't know, rise like 
demons or something. Yeah. Or it could be like the working title for Neil Strauss's The Game. So like the Book of Tricks, parentheses, to play on women to get them to sleep with you. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. It works every time. I had so put that out of my head that I had no idea what you were talking about. I mean, it's good that you're not constantly on edge from like men trying to, uh, you know, diminish your personality in order to like pick you up it's good that you're you're not actively thinking about that um well it's neither of those things uh the contents of the kitab al hiyal are far more useful and far more spectacular than the name would imply the book is also more commonly referred to as the book of ingenious devices arguably a much more accurate description (laughs) and it was written in 850 ce by three brothers known as the banu mansu they're just collectively known as the Banu Mansu. Banu Mansu. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a sick name. So yeah, rather than being known as the brothers Mansu or the the three brothers Banu Mansu, they're sometimes just called Banu Mansu. Had you have you heard of them before? No, I have no idea who they are, but I'm I love the name. Yeah, um, they're kind of like a, a dream team. So before its destruction by the Mongols. Sorry, I'm just picturing a boy band. <laughs> I mean, we. I don't have an accurate idea of what the Banu Mansu looked like, but if you want to imagine oh, I will. lots of like feathered ends and like designer stubble, then mm-hmm. by all means. So before its destruction by the Mongols, the Banu Mansu, Ahmed, Muhammad, and Hassan bin Musa ibn Shakir worked in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. These Persian brothers combined their passion for geometry, astronomy, and engineering to design and create some truly wondrous devices. Like many other influential individuals from the Islamic Golden Age, the Banu Mansu built on the work of many academics from a variety of cultures. Water engineering seems to be at the heart of many of their designs, and they utilize surprisingly advanced pistons, gears, crankshafts, and levers to amazing effect. So... Here's something that I had to get over mentally. When when I think of Iraq, because I've never been to Iraq, or I guess at the time it would have been known as Mesopotamia, what is modern day, day Iraq, I, I just think of desert. I think of there as being like all arid, no water. There's some quite beautiful photos of like the mountains and valleys covered in grass and like horses grazing. Right. Um, yeah, I mean... And also, you know, like, Mesopotamia, cradle of life, like, or cradle of civilization, I guess. Yeah, so, like, part of the reason that Baghdad uh, existed where it did, because the the heart of the Islamic empire under the Umayyads had been Damascus. So one of the first things that the first Abbasid caliph did was move their, their capital, if you like, from Damascus over to Baghdad. They built Baghdad. And the reason that they built it where it was is because... Yes, river. Yeah, so it's on the banks of the river Tigris, and it's also very close to the river uh, Euphrates. So it's, you know, really great farmland. And it's also, like, bang in the middle of the the Silk Road and, and essentially, like, the hub of the the enlightened world at the time, I guess. By the way, here's a sad thing that I learned a little while ago. As um, part of, like, art therapy for refugees, um, a lot of them will get together to recreate these beautiful world heritage sites that have been destroyed in... um, In Syria, yeah, yeah, or in Iraq. Yep. Uh, Yeah, it's so funny that... um, 
Yeah, it's so funny that we were talking about the Mongol sacking Baghdad earlier and we were kind of like verbally wagging our fingers. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, you know, America and the UK, the Mongols of the modern world. Well, you know what, Alicia? Like, the Mongols weren't trying to give the people of Iraq their freedom, mm-hmm. okay? The kind of modern freedom that we... Like, they weren't trying to give the Iraqis McDonald's, okay? Now they have McDonald's, so, you know, if we had to, like fire some hellfire missiles at like a few thousand libraries or whatever small price to pay i think we can all agree i'm being sarcastic if you can't tell from the sound of it i'm deeply deeply sarcastic uh so back to the banu mansu uh many of their devices were obviously practical they helped pioneer drinking fountains flush toilets water wheels many items that would help the residents of a bustling city like baghdad when I found out that they had drinking fountains yeah. in ancient Baghdad, I was mind blown. That's pretty incredible. Like you always hear about like, oh, the irrigation, you know, the way that they passed water into their crops was just incredible. And you're like, okay, yeah, I mean, they had some pipes, but like, sure. when you think of drinking fountains, you think of like, you know, modern day parks or high schools, which we're not allowed to use anymore. But yeah, to think that, you know, you could just like go have a little, have a little sip when you're out and about and yeah. in what, the 18, the 800s? So this would have been, yeah, the 800, 800 CE range. It's, it's amazing to me, perhaps because even though I've seen the inside of a flush toilet, like uh, as everyone has done, I've lifted off the cistern when it like stops flushing and being like, oh, what's what's wrong here? Um, I still don't understand how it works. <laughs> I still don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but they really, really did. So, uh, okay. Since praying at five specific times throughout the day as a core tenant of Islam, the ability to accurately tell time would have also been of crucial importance. Fortunately, they created an elephant-shaped clock, again, powered by water, which would mark off every half hour and move a tiny bird figure across a miniature sun to mark the passing of the day. So it's both an elephant and a bird in the sun? So, Alicia, I am now going to show you uh, some images of... Oh, wow. Yeah. um, I'll try and make this a little bit larger for you here. There we go. So this is not far off their original design. Could you describe what you're seeing, please? Okay, so it's like an elephant with a, a rug covering over its back and mm-hmm. then a man sitting on its neck or head. And then on top, in like kind of uh, think in terms of uh, the Prince Ali song. Oh, where the elephants are coming down. Ali, fabulously, Ali And now yeah, Disney's coming for us. Um... It's like like a big tower coming off of the top of the elephant sure. with like a really ornate, maybe like a pendulum. Looks almost kind of like carved stone or like jade. Yeah. So I'm going to try and describe this uh, to you based on your description there. Um, so inside the body of the elephant would be a small vessel of water with a weighted, not quite a pendulum, but um, a little weight on a chain. Now... 
it was weighted such that every 30 minutes it would drop and then I believe empty the load of water or pick up water and that would trigger the mechanism. So the little rider on the elephant's head, his arms would go up and down to show that he is like beating the elephant or urging the elephant to go forward. There's also, I don't know if you can see here, but there are two dragons that would drop down as well. Yeah, so they're like red carved dragons and like kind of like a loop with their heads up towards like a guy sitting on near the top. Yeah, and they're also practical because that would trigger the release of a tiny ball and there would be a certain number of balls in in the top of the tower on the elephant and for every ball that's released that will force the bird that's going from the front of the elephant to the back of the elephant to move I guess one half hour, one increment. Is the bird turning in like a circle? Is that what's going on? It's like at the very tip top? In the design that I saw it's moving from back to front over the top of the elephant. However, I guess like, you know, numerous different designs could alter their original design a little bit. Basically, it's really intricate and really beautiful and kind of like an automaton. Yes, and that, again, is kind of something that comes up a lot in the Book of Ingenious Devices is automata, various different, what we would think of as being robots, Um, Incidentally, I was able to give you such a detailed description of that because there is a series that Al Jazeera released where they cover all different aspects of the Islamic Golden Age. I watched a couple of episodes. I didn't have time to watch the entire series, but you name it, um, medicine, mathematics, astrology, astronomy, etc., etc. They cover it in, in great detail, including the section about the Bantu Mus- uh, Banu Musu and their uh, their book of ingenious devices. So and their boy band and and their yeah some of their uh, well you know their greatest not, hits yeah I wasn't a fan of their their later albums but um, so I'll include that in the sources and by all means I would definitely check it out because it's really good. So they also created less practical but more fantastical devices using automation. Although we associate the idea of robots with science fiction, they were making it science fact all the way back in the 9th century. How about a self-timing oil lamp which lights itself at a certain time of day? Or a mini flute player that's powered by either water or steam and can be programmed to play different songs? Yeah, it's incredible. Imagine if this had been like allowed to continue to grow and instead of like... People used to like stick nails and candles to like mark the time so like the candle would burn down and then the nail would fall off and like hit like a little tin plate below it and like that's like whoa look at your clock you're like to wake yourself up whereas like in the ninth century these people have like self-timing gas lamps that turn on by themselves i mean is this a potential fire hazard quite possibly but is it worth it to show, you know, this technology that's like hundreds of years ahead of its time? Arguably. Arguably until your house burns down. So, do you remember when I sat and played Bioshock Infinite? It's the one, it's set in like a city in the clouds and sure. like an alternate history uh, turn of the 20th century. That's what I was thinking the entire time that I was reading about their book of ingenious devices is, is just like steampunk robots and technology that just shouldn't exist. It just seems completely anachronistic. Um, But yeah, really, really interesting stuff. So I don't know about you, but my understanding of anatomy, medicine, and science, or more specifically where that knowledge came from, 
is that the great thinkers of the European Renaissance, such as Leonardo da Vinci, started to look at the human body as an instrument. A mach- did a lot of grave robbing. <laughs> I mean, definitely. Uh, a machine made up of different components. A study of the human anatomy through methods such as dissection, grave robbing, uh, allowed us a greater insight into what we are and what makes us tick. But as it turns out, there were people doing this across the Islamic world 600 years beforehand, working out of, you guessed it, the House of Wisdom. So in the 900s, an Arabian physician named Abu al-Qasim Khalaf Ibn al-Abbas al-Zarawi al-Ansari, or al-Zarawi for short, created and refined surgical implements including the syringe, forceps, uh, surgical hook and needle, bone saw, and something called a lithotomy scalpel, which I'll assume is just a scalpel. Uh, yeah, sorry, anytime anybody uses the term bone saw, I just like get shivers up my spine. What's wrong with bone saw? That's <laughs> great. Are you okay with a regular saw? Yeah, no. Hack saw. Mm-hmm. Seesaw. No, I don't like seesaws. Circular saw. Mm, it's a bit... It's a bit of a thumb up at God, isn't it? Circular saw. Why does it need to be circular? Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about a chainsaw? No, oh, that's fine. Bone saw. No, I don't like it. You still don't like it. Okay. Well, he invented one of those things that we don't need to talk about anymore. Uh, he also invented the use of cat gut to stitch wounds and identified ectopic pregnancies for the first time as well as... Oh, yeah. People still have a hard time identifying ectopic pregnancies now. I think people uh, were aware of like abnormalities in pregnancy before that time. I think that he was the first person to suggest that a fetus could be developing uh, outside of the the womb, which I think is what an ectopic, uh, ectopic pregnancy is. I want to say it's in the fallopian tubes. Yes, that sounds about right. So uh, yeah, like he, he knew his stuff. And he even devised an early method for destroying kidney stones without the need for incision. So that's the kind of thing that nowadays you would need, uh, I think you would need like ultrasound waves to like break yeah. up a kidney stone. Uh, yeah, he, he was suggesting ways to do that all the way back in the 900s. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, what was most impressive for me though is that he also describes performing a very early version of cataract surgery. I did know about this, actually. Oh, yeah? We have some diagrams of their understanding of the human eye. I'm showing this to Alicia right now. Uh, And again, if you could just go ahead and describe what you're looking at. Okay. Um, Like a faded brown paper Mm -hmm. um, with Arabic writing. And there's like a black outline of an eye. Mm -hmm. And then inside looks kind of like the inside of like a cornea. So like yeah. like the yeah, if you've ever if you've ever like me had um gone to the eye doctor and seen like the posters of like where the light enters your eye and how it hits the lens at the back it's kind of like a primitive version of that. Yeah. So they had that level of knowledge um partly thanks to a very early optometrist that I'll tell you about in a second but but first I want to describe how to perform cataract surgery back in the 900s. Patient has to be seated directly in front of the sunshine while his normal eye is completely covered. If his left eye is to be treated, hold his eyelid up and with your left hand, twist the needle until getting inside the eyeball. 
then you feel that it has gone into an empty space. You will see the needle in the centre of the pupil because of corneal transparency, Alicia. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. Both Will and I have had eye surgery uh-huh. to like to correct our vision, and I'm having flashbacks to that surgery of which you are awake for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for your eye surgery, they give you drugs, and for my <laughs> eye surgery, they did not give me drugs. They gave me um like. Uh, lorazepam, so like an anxiety drug. And you were high as a kite, I sure you? was. Yeah. It was excellent. But I was still very aware of what was happening. Okay, so picture this. You got a cataract. Uh, you don't even have like topical anesthesia or anything. They're just like jabbing and... Oh, I, I think any anesthesia at the time would have been like cold instruments or, you know, like cold padding or um, herbal, essentially. So there's no no lorazepam while this is going on. Uh, now hold the needle where the cataractus lens has been formed and push the needle down a few times. If all parts of the lens are discharged... Oh, I should have probably done a trigger oh, warning before God. this. <laughs> trigger warning. This is going to get gross. Uh, if all parts of the lens are discharged, the patient, uh, the patient can see while the needle is still oh, in his eye. No! <laughs> if not, push down the needle once more, then bring back up the needle to its original place in the anterior chamber, then turn the needle gently. Oh, please stop. Are we done yet? <laughs> Uh, well, so, okay, so now, like, now dissolve Turkish salt, I don't know why it has to be Turkish, uh, in water and wash the eye, and then... With cl- salt? I know it's, like, an antibacterial... Well, I think it's, like, early saline solution, isn't it? Oh, God. Uh, then put a clean cotton pad coated with white egg, or egg white? I'm not sure. Uh, with egg, rose water and oil on the eye, and cover both eyes with the pad. Thank you for that. That was excellent. There's more description about Please what to don't. do if the eye uh, if, if the eyeball is resistant. Let's just skip past that. <laughs> Fascinating and gross is what I've written in my notes. So uh, then there was Hassan ibn al Haytham. He was a physicist and focused, pardon the pun, primarily in the field of optics. Al Haytham was purportedly the first person to suggest that vision occurs in the brain, not in the eye. You can see some very detailed diagrams he drew on the human eye and how light reflects as it passes through the lens in his Book of Optics, published between uh, around 1011 and 1021 CE. So the diagram that I showed you earlier was was one of Al-Haytham's diagrams. Perhaps more importantly, Al-Haytham was an early proponent of the scientific method. Building on Aristotelian thought, he put forward that when engaged in the experiment, you should outline a hypothesis that you're seeking to prove or disprove. Other scholars at this time were engaging in similar practices, and this was a period of time that gave rise to ideas such as having control groups and data gathering, ideas that are so prevalent today that we simply take them for granted. So I I guess before that, you just kind of thought of a thing and you... Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, usually. Sure. Like, like you're like, well, um, I don't really know what happens when I do this. When I stick a needle in someone's eye. <laughs> something good, probably. Everyone's going to love it. Uh, yeah, so I guess he would have had a, a control group um, or certainly, like, gathered data on how their patients were doing after the surgery, for example. Uh, then we have Ibn al-Nafis, or Allah al-Din Abu al-Hassan Ali Ibn Abi Hassam al-Kashi al-Dimashki, for long. 
by the way, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, obviously I could be wrong, but from what I've been told, um, is that it's your father's name and all of your father, like their father's names. So it's like, why they have such long names is because it's basically tracing back their lineage. Mm -hmm. It's it's what, it happens in a lot of Spanish names as well. And obviously we do something to a a similar degree in like English, um, like in like Norwegian cultures when they like Davidson. Johnson, Stevenson, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can't confirm or deny that. However... I, uh, with, without meaning to cancel myself, I, I, I'm just really enjoying saying these names. Uh, they, they sound really fun to me. They sound really fun to the white boy, uh, who doesn't speak Arabic, but it, I mean, it's a beautiful sounding language to me. And I also just find it fascinating that you can, you can have such an incredibly long name and that's how people are meant to address you. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm just really enjoying some of the names in this story. So, um, I'm going to call him Al-Nafis, and he was born in 1213 CE, and he was a true polymath. He studied medicine, surgery, physiology, anatomy, biology, Islamic studies, jurisprudence, and philosophy. He knew a lot, and he also apparently knew he knew a lot. So there's this story about how he's in his early 20s, and I think uh, this took place in the House of Wisdom. He um, was kind of throwing his weight around some other with some other scholars and an older scholar approached him and he he tried to put him in his place and he told the guy uh, words to the to the effect of I know what you know but you don't know what I know and this is a guy in like his 20s damn son uh, yeah and then like all the scholars behind him were like oh shit oh Alnaski oh. sorry Alnafis oh anyway so Al-Nafis, smart guy, he's aware that he's very smart. Uh, Perhaps his biggest impact in the modern world are his contributions to the circulatory system. He challenged the works of previous scholars, such as the Greek physician Galen. Galen thought that blood reached from one side of the heart to the other by means of invisible pores in the walls between the left and right atrium. So if you imagine what a heart looks like. We know that it's made up of different chambers. And so Galen was teaching that the way that blood got from one side to the other, it basically passed through the middle, through pores that were too small for the human eye to detect. And now we're like, oh, you idiot, you absolute moron. But <laughs> Galen, you, ugh, you dumb dumb, no. Um, I, I don't a, know how he landed that, on this conclusion. To me, that seems fair enough for the time period. Sure. Uh, For want of a better idea, that's what he thought at the time. But Al-Nafis theorized correctly that blood actually circulates uh, through the left atrium via the pulmonary arteries where it connects to the lungs. There the blood is oxygenated before re-entering the heart through the right atrium. This helped reshape our fundamental understanding of how blood is circulated through the body. Again, Al-Nafis and his peers were able to explore their hypotheses through dissection of human and animal bodies. Sometimes, it sounds like during this period, some people looked down on um, or were were not 100% okay with uh, dissecting human bodies. Oh, I think in certain religions you have to be buried. Yeah. Like, full and complete, so you can't have an autopsy. Sure. So, I think... You know, there is that. Like, it could be against religious practice to dissect a body. I'm not 100% sure on this. I know this was a time period when they still had slaves. So I wonder if maybe certain oh, s- I slaves would assume had the... It, it was probably not, like, 
or maybe like John Doe's, like their equivalent of John Doe's. It, well, I would assume it would be the same as what like Europeans did. It's like mm -hmm. they would buy bodies and or like dig them up. Like, well, they also had enough of an understanding of. Uh, actual medical science to understand that you could dissect something like a pig or a cow, etc. Like you could dissect another animal and it would be close enough to the human body that they, they could also study that in its stead. Um, so they would do that when human bodies weren't available for whatever reason. Uh, so we've been analysing these contributions to modern medicine and science on a micro level, but on a macro scale, the Islamic world was centuries ahead in terms of healthcare. They had relatively modern hospitals throughout the empire which sought to cure and rehabilitate rather than simply tend to the sick. Many of these hospitals had herb gardens where they grew their medicines and although we might scoff at modern interpretations of holistic medicines, these doctors understood the link between plants such as lavender, wormwood and sage and their potential effects on the human body. Apparently, affordable and even free healthcare was commonplace meaning treatment was not only provided for those lucky enough to afford it. Oh, I sigh, an American. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're referring to. Uh, and we know all of this because medical scholars recorded their findings in texts that would be used by physicians across Europe for centuries afterwards. Aside from, like, like healthcare and math and science, there are other, like things that you could do like for example if you are a muslim woman i believe you are able to own property you could own your own like business you were able to initiate divorce proceedings mm -hmm. these were all things that european women couldn't do at the time and wouldn't be able to do for centuries yeah before i i, I want to conclude with something on that so to summarize, the Islamic Golden Age is an era of intellectual exploration that, in my opinion, we really need to know more about. Maybe some of the rampant Islamophobia that I witnessed when I grew up in the wake of 9-11 would have been somewhat tempered had anything about this time period been taught in schools. Was it a utopia? Absolutely not. There was still war and slavery, and undoubtedly many of the great thinkers of the age would have been incorrect in many of their most confident assertions. Let's not forget the fact that it came about as a result of a bloody war with the, the previous rulers of this caliphate. But it does represent some pretty noble ideas. The scholars of this time, especially those under the Abbasid dynasty, understood the value of multiculturalism. They drew upon innumerable different sources and built upon rather than dismantled what they already had. Furthermore, when we look upon the great figures of this era, we're not just talking about one group of people from one part of the world, Arab scholars speaking and writing in Arabic, for example, or only followers of the Muslim faith. Again, these sound like an intellectually egalitarian group of individuals, who welcome people from across the known world from multiple corners of the religious spectrum, all in the pursuit of a common goal, knowledge. If we can't appreciate the sentiment in that idea, then we might not have many more golden ages in our future. Steve. Th thank you. That's, that's what I was going for. Um, yeah, I mean, anytime we have to look at history, we need to look at it through different lenses. We're not saying that just because there was this advancement in science and math and, and medical science, that it was some sort of place where they, they could do no wrong. 
Right? Yeah. That's not true. People are people no matter what. But I think something that we maybe don't recognize is any kind of like contribution to the world as we know it by people who aren't European. Mm-hmm. Yeah, precisely. And we are as guilty of it as anyone. Uh, we've got such a Eurocentric, Western-centric view of the world. That being said, when I was doing the research for my part of this episode, I was drawn upon a lot of articles and a lot of videos that I would say, especially in the last couple of years, it seems like there's more and more being said about this particular era of time by non Muslim scholars, so it's not just stuff that's coming out of that particular demographic. So it seems to be something, an idea that's kind of re-entering the zeitgeist. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe like in schools in the UK, it's something, you know, it could be added to their curriculum, like within our lifetime. Who knows? Yeah, that was heartening to see. Yeah, and honestly, all in, it's a pretty amazing golden age. Mine is less so. Before we get to your, I'm sure, still perfectly fine golden age, uh, should we take a little break? Let's take a break. Let's take a break. And welcome back. Hello. Are you ready to hear about the Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood? Yes, I am. I think it's going to be a lot easier to hear about a golden age than it is to talk about a golden age. All right. Fair enough. I'm going to sit here and rest my weary lips. Yeah. Vocal cords? Heavy, heavy (laughs) vocal cords. Okay. So the Hollywood golden age, some say it lasted from the 1910s all the way until the 60s, while others insist it was only post-depression until around 1948, which is a significant date that I will get into later. Yeah, it seems like the Islamic Golden Age and pretty much every Golden Age that we looked up, there's always this kind of contentious, when did it start? When did it end? Because no one comes along and they're like, well, it's a Golden Age, guys, starting tomorrow. (laughs) Golden Age over (laughs) now. No more Golden Age. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um... Okay, so I want to briefly talk about the the 1910s or the the silent film era. So it was like from the formation of the first studios until the release of The Jazz Singer in 1927, which was the first film to include synchronized speech. Okay. And a lot of people, I guess, would ask, like, why why is Hollywood in L.A.? I I think I know this, but I don't want to tread on what you're about to say what too are you? much. Go ahead. Okay, so okay, even cinema today, you need massive, like industrial sized lights, right? And the lighting is so important to whatever it is that you're shooting. If you have a natural source of light, like say in that particular part of California, it's gonna be more helpful to, to what you're doing and probably help keep costs down. That's why Hollywood didn't um sprout up in like the northeast of Scotland where I came from, unfortunately. Yeah, it's certainly like a huge part is like a warm climate, a warm sunny climate that basically lasts all year. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason is cheap labor from Mexico. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, you just said it, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Um, and there's a court ruling. So Edison is often credited with coming up with a lot of like the technology used in filmmaking. Whether or not he did, because Edison was known to uh, steal patents. Yeah. He. Uh... I don't, yeah. He also electrocuted an elephant all around, not a great dude. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a court ruling which restricted Edison's patent law. So it made it easier to make films in L.A. than it would if you were closer to, like, New York. So does this mean that if you were shooting in other parts of the country and you were using electric lighting that you would have to, like, pay... Uh, uh, like a you stipend or something? You probably have to do, like, royalties or something. Wow. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if we had to pay royalties to Edison every time that we turned on? So I don't think it's necessarily, like, the lights themselves okay. as much as it is, like, I think he pioneered, like, cameras. And so, oh, okay. like, getting, like, buying technology, you would have to pay, like, more because it was, like, patented by Edison. Uh-huh. Or, like, you couldn't, like, buy cameras from other people, probably. Sure. There was another place that could have been a modern-day Hollywood. What what place do you think? So, you you want natural sunlight and, like, a warm climate all year round, and you, and you want Mexican... We do cheap, cheap labor. Um, ooh, is it still in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. It's still in the U.S. Is it... Texas. No. Is it one of those It's kind of It's in the states? south. It's down there. Arizona. Is it Utah? <laughs> it's farther over. It's Florida. Oh, okay. So Hope, Hope Sound in Florida was also popular, but the bursting of a real estate bubble and a 1928 Okeechobee hurricane put an end to uh, the Floridian Hollywood. You imagine how much different Florida would be nowadays. I know. I was thinking that. Like, what do you think? Like a Floridian Hollywood would be like. Um, swampier, Mm. definitely. Well, I think instead of seeing uh movies where like everything is kind of shot in or around L.A. or like the valley, like a rocky desert, it would all be like swampland. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there would be a lot more westerns. where there's somehow like a plot contrivance where they have to like go fight Indians in the swamp. There's like a, on the beach. <laughs> yeah, like he's getting away, boys, on the horses. Da, 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 and then they're like chasing them like down the Everglades or something. Um, and But we would just accept that in the same way that we just like accept that a bunch of sci-fi movies always seem to be shot in the same part the of same the desert. Rocks. Yeah, with the same rocks. Okay, so it wasn't uh, because obviously hurricanes. Yeah, I mean they they will fuck things up mm. definitely. Okay, so in the silent film era, the average speed of a film was six frames per second. Oh, sorry, sixteen, sixteen frames per second. Mm. But the cameras were hand cranked, which meant that in reality, frame rate could change drastically depending on the projectionist. This was eventually standardized to 24 frames per second when it was realized that 16 was too slow for the talkies. Yeah. They couldn't afford, like, the 60 FPS that we have nowadays because they were just a bunch of old-fashioned cooks. <laughs> they just couldn't crank their arm that fast. Exa- yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if they worked out a little bit more, bro. Uh, so the Library of Congress estimates that 75% of silent-era films were lost, mostly due to the flammable nature of the celluloid. So, 
celluloid film is highly flammable. Oh, yeah. Um, and warehouses full of film canisters would often just erupt into flames. Just spontaneously combust. So usually what would happen is there wasn't a lot of long-term value in films, so they would just either be destroyed or distributed. So, like, they didn't keep any films. Well, I imagine as well, at the time, they probably saw it as, like, I mean, to, to this day, I imagine that movie uh, movie execs think of movies in terms of money makers even if you're trying to make uh like an oscar bait type drama or epic at the end of the financial year you're still going into it with an eye to like furthering whoever whichever star is in your stable of stars who will then like sell next summer's action movie yeah. well, right i mean we'll get to that but, but I guess they didn't, they weren't really thinking of this new technology as like an art form that people were going to want to keep. Well, also, how are you going to watch it again? Oh, yeah. It, well, it was before Betamax, you mm, see, before yeah. Betamax came along and changed. Yeah. Which, the game. you know, we all have Betamax now, obviously. Yeah, Household I, I name. I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there was no reason to keep it because the only reason would be to show it again in the theater. But how many people are going to come to watch your film again? when it's more dangerous to keep a hold of the celluloid film than what it is, is like a possible moneymaker. Which movie did you see the most times in the theater? Oh, ever? Um, I don't know. What about you? I think I may have watched Avengers Age of Ultron three times. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I may have gone like twice to the movie theater to see like, Again, like, I'm not really a huge movie person. Maybe Harry Potter? Okay, yeah. Um, I, I did go to, like, almost all of the Harry Potter premieres because I was a huge Harry Potter f fan when I was a kid. And st I still love Harry Potter. Um, I, I will say there is something rather unique. Now that I think about it, I'm, I'm kind of, like, giving myself the feels. You've had that feeling where you, like, walk out of a movie theater and you're like, oh, my God. That was so amazing. Can we go back right now? Let's go back mm -hmm. in and watch it right now. And then, like, kind of planning the next time you're going to go and watch that movie. Whereas, like, the feeling that... Maybe I'm just getting older. But more and more often I have nowadays is, like, you walk out of the movie and you're, like, vaguely confused. And you, kinda, <laughs> you look at the person you were with and you were like, was that... Was that good? Was that good? I think that was bad. It was, like, the last time we went to a movie theater, which was Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman 1984. Yeah. And it was... Just the entire walk home was like, and another thing, like... <laughs> Wait a second, hold on. Spoilers. Did she really just have somebody take over somebody else's body and then have sex with them? Yeah, she feel on rape that dude. Yeah, that's yeah. fucked up. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there was an exception to this, like, total destruction of silent era films, and that is Dawson City in the Yukon Territory in Canada, which was usually the last destination for film distribution, and returning reels was not really worth the trouble. They stored these film reels indefinitely, which resulted in a number of fires, and uh, until hundreds of films, when not just thrown into the river, were buried under a swimming pool and largely forgotten. I guess it's better than, like, returning the reels and then they check to see if you, like, rewound the reels yeah. and then they give you, like, a hard time about it. Like, do you rewind this? Yeah. And you're like, just Be kind, take, rewind. Oh, just take the thing. Give me my card. God, Blockbuster. Oh. Um, That's why you no longer exist. Since those buried reels were stored in the area, 
permafrost, they were largely preserved until they were dug up in 1978. Wow. So that's how, like, we still have access to a lot of silent era films. Yeah, by basically doing to them what Bird's Eye does to fish fingers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, coating them in batter and um, deep frying them. I'm going to guess Bird's Eye is a company. Yeah, it's a Bird's Eye. Bird's Eye is a frozen food brand. Sure. Uh, So their whole thing is frozen (laughs) foods. I'm sorry that one didn't land. It's okay. Should we do it again? No. They did to... No. Okay, uh, famous films from this time period include Birth of a Nation, which is a KKK propaganda piece, mm. but was kind of one of the first silent era films to have like a, like a full feature film with a coherent plot. God, there's nothing worse than when somebody commits hate speech to film and you're like, God damn the cinematography in this <laughs> is majestic. Oh, I can't believe how good the lighting and sound design is. Oh, I'm so angry, I mean, but certainly I'm, no sound it's beautiful. Uh, that was in 1915. Mm. Uh, the General with Buster Keaton, you know, the famous, like... Is that where he's on the train? And he's, like, picking up the, um... The logs, like, hitting them? Yeah. To, like, flip them up, which was a real stunt that he did. Oh, yeah. All of his stunts are nuts. Yeah. Like, and not like nuts like Tom Cruise teaching himself to hold his breath for six minutes so that he can do a, a single take underwater nuts. No, like there's one where uh, the facade of a building falls on him. Do you mean facade? Facade. Uh, the facade of a... There's one where the facade of a building falls on him. I see. And um, he manages to position himself so he's right in the hole of the window. Mm-hmm. Um, Is... I, I might be getting him confused with Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin does the one where he's on the roller skates and he almost skates over the side of a, a balcony. Yes, but that but one is all trick camera. That's, that's yeah, like forced perspective mm-hmm. and stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buster Keaton was the real deal. I guess when you are um, making your living as a stuntman before stuntman is a job in an era where if you don't have a job, you are going to starve to death then um, you're you're willing to put yourself in some danger. Yeah, and also you're, like, pioneering this, like, new art. And let's be honest, in, like, a lot of the silent film era, stars were looked down upon because this was seen as, like, a real, like, kind of working class. um, Like, the working class would go see films, whereas, like, wealthy people would go see theater. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Oh, so I guess the modern equivalent would be when somebody's, like, uh... Or it's like a TV it, star versus a film star. Or like, I'm I'm a star on YouTube. Or mm. I'm I'm like a TikTok influencer, and people are like, "Sure, sure you, you are, are sweetie, honey. yeah." And but then it turns out they're making more money than you do in a year, like off of one video. It's like, oh, okay. Whatever. I don't want to talk about it. Sure. Um, some other films include Metropolis in 1927, which is that really famous uh, sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. Fritz uh, Lang. Yeah. Yeah. And Les Voyages dans la Lune, A Trip to the Moon in 1902. Yeah, by the name is escaping me now, but he's a very famous French artist. Yeah, and you would recognize this picture. It's like the moon with like a giant looking like bullet sticking out of its eye. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar with the movie itself, you've if you've ever watched the Smashing Pumpkins video for Tonight Tonight, they do a pretty good pastiche of his work, and his name is still escaping me. I'm sorry, I don't have it written down, because I'm a terrible researcher. That is annoying. 
Okay, so why is it called the Golden Age? Um, because now we would think, well, we have such huge advancements in film today. Why isn't today the Golden Age of Hollywood? Because you should make more movies every year that aren't just superhero movies. Mm. Uh, they were making around 800 films a year. 700 to 800 films a year in this time period. I'm guessing that's more than nowadays. I'm not sure, but... Again, don't have these figures. You really call me out. Uh, so there were huge advancements in film. There were feature films with plots and innovative film techniques. So obviously a huge part of the golden age is the advancement from silent to sound and then to color and special effects. Uh, but in the 1930s, we see film devices, plot, and uh, technology advancing. So film devices, like the 180-degree rule, which mm -hmm. dictates where to place cameras to create continuity. So if you've ever seen, like, student films where, like, the camera is placed at different angles on two characters who are supposed to be talking, and it kind of looks like they're both looking in the same direction. Yeah. That's breaking the 180-degree rule. Or if, for example, someone is driving a car... And they're going from right to left. So you know they're leaving. And then in the next scene, they're going from left to right. You would think that, oh, well, they're going back. They've turned around. So I, as somebody who studied film previously, I still struggle to envision how to use the 180 degree rule or not to break the 180 degree rule. So I think it's very important to understand the line of action. Mm. So if you imagine two characters having a conversation and they're facing one another, the line of action is from the first character's face to the other character's face, the, the, the plane that you are seeing. And so if you had a wide shot of those two characters talking, the line of action would just have two of them in profile. Basically, you can't have the cameras pass that line. Yeah, exactly. Because um, it's hella weird. <laughs> we also have plot, which is driven by relatable characters. Well, relatable white middle class characters, usually. Of, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. And has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. uh, before this time period, a lot of cinema is rooted in French cinema and German cinema, but post-World uh, War. That's why American cinema overtook them. Mm -hmm. And they were probably what you would call maybe a little more artsy, and these kind of film devices established kind of the American way of making cinema. Mm -hmm. Lighting techniques had also improved, and studios could afford to experiment because they owned theaters, and those theaters were obligated to show both high-grossing films and the bombs. So they did what was called, like, block blocking. So they would sell, like, a series of films in one chunk to the theater. The theater would have to buy all of those, the good ones and the bad ones, mm -hmm. to show to people. So that meant, like, the high-grossing films had to be shown as well as the low-grossing films because you've already paid money for them. So, again, it's not like today where every other movie is a superhero movie because those are the, those are the big money pictures. Those are the guaranteed high-grossing ones. And it is so difficult to get your little indie film shown anywhere because you're not going to have... You're not going to be pulling in that revenue. Yes, so, but there weren't really indie films because there were only eight major studios. Now, you touched on this a little bit before, and I think you said that six of those... Seven were created during the silent film era. So right. I want you to try and guess the major studios. <sighs> okay. 
All right, we'll dig deep. Here we go. All right, Universal Studios. Um, yes. Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Which was a minor studio. Okay. Uh, then you've got Paramount. Yep. And then you would have. Are we including Disney? No. Okay, not Disney. Um, then you would have. Twentieth Century Fox. Yes, which yeah. merged, so Fox Film Corporation merged with 20th Century Pictures in 1935. Okay. And then you would have, now my brain is immediately going to like Apple TV and Netflix, <laughs> okay. etc. So so we have Metro Goldwyn Mayer, the MGM with the lion. Oh, okay. Um, it was the product of a 1924 merger of three companies. Paramount Pictures, which you got. Uh, First National Pictures, which was acquired by Warner Bros. Okay. In in 1928. Uh, Fox Film, which merged with 20th Century. Universal Pictures. Columbia Pictures. Mm. And uh, a a studio called United Artist. Yeah. Um, They they had the the Pegasus mm -hmm. at the beginning of their movies. The eighth was RKO Pictures or RKO Radio. Was a very minor studio in the silent era called Film Booking Offices of America. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Catchy. Um, but they, they will grow to prominence. Mm-hmm. So these studios had massive monopolies. They bought theaters. So they had what was called vertical integration, most of them. So what they would do is they owned production, distribution, and exhibition. Mm. So they owned the production, which means they made the films. They owned the rights to distribute or sell the films and send them places and they also own the theaters which were obligated to show the films and that probably works out really well for for everyone at every level right yeah for certainly for these companies Mm -hmm. um by 1930 95 percent of all american productions were created by those eight studios Boy. Five controlled production, distribution, and exhibition. The three minor ones only controlled productions and distributions. But distribution included movies sent abroad as well, and sending movies abroad accounted for half of all revenue at this time. Although presumably it's got to be quite... I mean, who um, who is paying to like put these things on boats and airplanes and send them so, to so, other so countries? So they are. Okay. That's, that's part of the distribution. Is right. They they like are doing the logistics to send their films on the understanding that they are securing a big enough market that they're going to yeah. have. Like... So they're selling films to like places in Europe, just the way the way that films do today okay. to film houses in Europe, which are not owned by them, mm-hmm. but still want to see these big American pictures. So they they created lots of different things. So they created feature films, cartoons, uh shorts and newsreels right um so when we think of uh that the idea of old-fashioned movies being shown you picture people in like a movie theater and there's maybe like a little comic yeah. at the beginning and now and- news from the american wolf front okay um so the reason why these like eight studios continue to kind of share the market it was because they showed different types of films so uh, MGM was kind of like American middle class values. It had bright, like even high key lighting. Mm-hmm. They had like opulent production design. Um, uh, this is courtesy of Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Paramount was European. It was uh, sophisticated and visually baroque. Ooh la la. Um, Warner Bros. was kind of cost-conscious and targeted towards working class. They did a lot of gritty crime dramas. Mm -hmm. And RKO Radio may not be a household name today, but they produced King Kong in 1933 that, um, you know, Fred Astaire and... Ginger, G- Rogers. Ginger Rogers, yeah. that whole like dance kind of up and down the stairs. Yeah, yeah. they produced that. Okay, um, and Orson Welles' Citizen Kane in yeah. 1941. So they produced some massive hits. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I mean ever everyone knows about like that Citizen Kane reboot mm-hmm. and the uh, and the Kaneverse that that um you know they're trying to get off the ground. I'm trying to think if they still have some of those values. So MGM, you're talking like opulence. So I think. MGM have all the James Bond movies and they shoot a lot of their stuff in, in studios in uh the in England and Paramount you were talking about how they they're like European. Yeah, I would I, say now they're maybe a little more indie. Well, when I think about Paramount, I think about like the Mission Impossible movies and oh, it seems yeah. like they're always racing through some European city like, mm-hmm. sh- you know, shooting cars and bad guys. I think Warner Bros has probably changed the most. I don't, well, I mean, Warner Brothers, I think, don't they, so I, I believe they own HBO, or or they are they like so a conglomerate. Now, yeah. yeah, so I guess if you were to include things like Boardwalk Empire and The Sopranos, etc., then you could argue that they've still got that kind of gritty, but then arguably but like then so HBO, do AMC yeah. and... I I think that at this time period, the only way to corner a market was to, like, just pick something and stick with that. Whereas now, it's not so much about cornering a market as much as it is, like, expanding. Well, because you want to reuse your resources, right? Because movie making is already so expensive. So, like, why would you shoot on a bunch of different sets and locations? Why would you bother, like, finding new talent when you can just get talent again i don't want to tread on your thing too much but like you can get talent on like a multi-picture deal and and then just keep them so speaking of that let's most of my golden age is kind of focused on how horrific it is because you have these huge monopolies they could get away with anything okay uh so they have what's called the star system which is is it like yelp yep yeah Uh, it's where studios are more concerned with looks than acting ability so, according to, uh, I don't know if it's Lewis or Louis, uh, B. Mayer from Goldwyn Metro Mayer, or Metro Goldwyn Mayer, um, MGM, he said, a star is made, created, carefully and cold-bloodedly built up from nothing. All I ever looked for was a face. If someone looked good to me, I'd have him tested. If a person looked good on film, if he photographed well, we could do the rest. Star making could include changing the actor's name. Coaching the actor in diction, posture, horseback riding, dancing, singing, fencing, and more. Physical enhancement with makeup, hairstyling, and hair replacement. Fitness training, and that most Hollywood affixes, cosmetic surgery. This is according to Hollywood Lexicon. I mean, the entire time that you were saying that, I was just thinking of Zac Efron. And and uh, the likes of Zac Efron, the likes of Channing Tatum, and how lucky those production companies were. Those two guys can also like act, and they can mm-hmm, also deliver like pretty boys. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't want to take that away from them. I don't know if being pretty is a talent. Like, diet and and uh, exercise regimen is something that you have to work on. But, like, no amount of hitting the gym and cutting out carbs is going to change your genetics, right? Yes. Uh, in case you are feeling down about yourself, just remember that most people who are... Uh, e- even though you should work hard to exercise and be healthy, um, your genetics are your genetics. And you can't look like some movie star just because you are working out and exercising. Mm-hmm. And also, they have a team of people who do everything for them, including care for everything in their life. But apparently, if you're signed to MGM, you can always fix it with a little bit of cosmetic surgery, right? Yeah, what so I'm let's talk about uh, Margarita... Uh, Casino, who became Rita Hayworth. Okay, not where I thought that was going. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she was of, like, Spanish descent, and at the time, Spanish was pretty ethnic. So she turned into Rita Hayworth with the help of a dye job and elect- elect- electrolysis to raise electrolysis? her... Electrolysis? Basically, like, taking out hair to raise her hairline. Because... Oh. Her hairline was quite low and came in on the sides, and that was seen as an ethnic hairline. And so a high forehead uh, is seen as more white. So I just want to be clear, because uh, I feel like you're going to be throwing this term around quite a lot. When you use the term ethnic, you mean like the way that a really posh white family would use the term ethnic yes. when they're driving through a certain neighborhood and insist that the, mm-hmm. uh, the kids put down the, the, the locks on their windows. I'm using the term ethnic uh, as a nice way of saying they were hella racist. Roger, I don't think we want to stop here. This neighborhood is a little bit ethnic. It's urban. Mmm, yeah. Oh, oh, Biffy, what will we do? Oh my goodness, Daphne. Think of the dogs. Think of the children. Our puppies. Drive, drive, drive. Okay, so... So she looked too, quote-unquote, ethnic. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and... By that, she was still European, but she was Southern European, which, as we all know, is... I mean, okay, so I, this is dur- still during a time period where if you're not a wasp, if mm-hmm. you're not a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, someone of that descent, then you are not white, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there is um, another actress, uh, Lucille Lesseur. Who do you think she became? I don't know if this is of the correct time period, but Lucille Ball is it? No, 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 no that, that's wrong. Uh, you know, it's uh, that's fair because her name is uh, definitely not close to Lucille Lucille at all. They basically held like a public poll to change her name, so everybody got oh, to God. vote on what her new name should be. Like that because... one time that they made people vote on that boat, and yeah. it became so. Oh, Boaty did boat face? Did she became like? Um... Starry McMovie face? Yeah. Um, she became Joan Crawford. Yeah, that's a different name. She's pretty famous. Um, yeah. So an MGM... MGM's going to come up a lot. They're, uh, they're not great. An MGM publicity man said that her last name reminded him of a sewer. Lysia is her name. And reportedly hated the name Joan Crawford because it saying that it reminded her of a crayfish or crawfish or crawdaddy. Yeah, so no one wins in that, really. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I pictured that PR man uh, chewing on a massive cigar yeah, as he was saying course. that, like, ashing it on, like, mm-hmm. his secretary's blouse, like... Uh, Mads, me of a sewer! Yeah. 
And you don't remind me of a sewer, sir, so let's listen to what you have to say. Yeah, you remind me of a you, piece of shit. You don't remind me of human trash. Okay, um, so I want to go into a case study. You know the actress Judy Garland? Uh, yes. Of Wizard of Oz fame? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Judy Garland was born Frances Ethel Gum. And she changed her name when she and her sisters toured in a vaudeville act. She's best known for The Wizard of Oz, um, and Garland was often cast as the girl next door or the ugly duckling because she just wasn't pretty enough. But she... But she was quite attractive, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Even by she's a pretty, today's she's standards. pretty girl. Yeah. Um, That's and, good. It's good that they're really boosting her up to begin with so that her confidence will remain nice and high. Oh, yeah. This is a happy story, as you'll find out. Yeah. Um, and as everyone knows, like, people, uh, like, confident, outgoing people are uh, easier to control and manipulate. Mm-hmm. The more confident somebody is, the more e- easy it is to convince them to do things against their will. Yeah. So in 1936, she was with MGM and she was only 14. Her mother had already begin- been giving her uppers and downers to keep her performing in vaudeville, which she had started at the age of two and a half. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, okay. So I'm a lot just, to unpack here already. Yeah. Uh, also, okay. I mean, presumably you start with one and then you get onto the other. I'll get into it. Yeah. Um, so Mayer of Metro Goldwyn Mayer called her a fat little pig with pigtails and oh. restricted her diet to only chicken soup black coffee, and cigarettes, along with pills oh to reduce her appetite, according to biography.com. So, um, oh, ooh, oh, where to begin? Uh, so firstly, I don't think cigarettes are part of any diet. In some accounts that I read, she, by the time she was 18, she was reportedly smoking 80 cigarettes a day. That's, that's a lot. To curb her appetite, basically. Yeah, um, okay, well. Yeah, so she... She was only 4'11", so her height was 4, f- four okay. feet 11 inches. Yeah. Um, and so any weight would show through her revealing dance costumes. So she was constantly on diets. She okay. lived on diet pills and black coffee. She wasn't allowed, like... So they had spies that were... <sighs> so sad. Um, so she had a close friend that she thought was her friend for years Mm -hmm. and in reality this woman was reporting who she talked to what she ate where she went everything to mgm oh so she was just doing what um what any normal friend would do well facebook or instagram does nowadays yeah um to uh and and judy garland had no idea and was heartbroken when she found out years later Mickey Rooney, at the same time, was, like, in a film with Judy Garland, and he knew that, like, they were placing spies with him um, to figure, like, to to keep tabs on him, basically. Mm-hmm. But this is how much power the studio has, and it only gets worse from here. According to Garland, they had us working days and nights on end. They'd give us pills to keep us on our feet long after we were exhausted. Then they'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills. Mickey sprawled out on the bed on one bed, and me on another, Garland told biography, biographer Paul Donnelly. Then, after four hours, they'd wake us up and give us the pep pills again so that we could work 72 hours in a row. Half the time we were hanging from the ceiling, but it was a way of life for us. So these pep pills were pills that they gave to a lot of stars and were basically just amphetamines. And presumably, again, that helps like keep them real thin as well, right? Mm. So it, it would help them do the long hours that the studio required of them. 
possibly keep them thin. And then when it was time for them to go to bed, they shove them full of sleeping pills, make them sleep for a couple hours, then wake them back up and shove them full of pet pills again or amphetamines again. I don't want this to get too true crimey because it always does in our podcast, but this is my understanding of like where cult leaders get to like before the end, before like the mass murder or suicide is just like constantly being like, like zigzagging between being like real high and real low. It gets bad. Okay. Um, By the time she was to star in Wizard of Oz at 17, they were strapping her breasts down so that she would appear more girlish. So she had this image that she had to keep up of of being a, a young girl. And so they wouldn't allow her to be seen with breasts. So they put her into corsets to strap her breasts down so that she would still be like that picturesque young girl. I mean, you can't have Dorothy hanging out with the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and Scarecrow with like them tiggle biddies hanging mm-hmm. out and like looking all, looking all sexy because she's going to be like, oh, how will we ever find the wizard? And I they're going to be I've like, this film. Oh, oh, did you say something? Because, uh, uh... I like Dorothy. She seems real cool. Yeah, she's real cool. So this isn't even getting into the possible sexual molestation that Garland and other actors and actresses endured, such as being forced to sit on Louis B. Mayer's lap. Yes, the same mayor who called her a fat pig. And He's just weighing her. That's Mm -hmm. just, he doesn't have scales. And a producer of MGM, Arthur Freed, exposed himself to a 12-year-old Shirley Temple. So basically, come on, Hollywood come on, Will, has say always been funny. fucked. Say something funny, Will. Uh, uh, Shirley Temple, like uh, with the with the curls Carlos, and the yeah. good the good chip lollipop. That is Shirley Temple. Yeah, who is also forced out of Hollywood. Um, oh my god! So because of all the uppers and downers, uh, these amphetamines that she was taking, she that she was forced to take. Her mental health took a huge hit, and every time she was sick from work or went to a psychiatric clinic for health, the studio billed her for delays. Oh my god. Okay. At, at one point, she owed them an, in $100,000 for delays, and so, this is not in our money. This is like indentured servitude, essentially. So they would take the money out of her paycheck for oh costing god. them filming delays. They said that she would like... When she was on set, she was so out of it. She would just, like, wander in kind of, like, a fugue-like state mm-hmm. because her mind was so addled from all these pills. She was eventually suspended and fired from MGM and would later die in 1969 of an accidental barbiturate overdose at the age of 47. Mm. So what do you think it was that eventually led her to the barbiturates, like, after she left Hollywood? She was taking those as well. Like, her mom... Her mom is a big enabler of the studio, and Garland does say that her mom was, like, a victim of the fame and everything that went along with it. But considering that her mom was putting her on vaudeville when she was two and a half, uh, she is also a villain in the story. Not as big of a villain as Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, who is just, like, a shit stain of a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, yes, yeah, she... He seems like, you know, um... Every morning, like, uh, when we'll take the dishes out of the rack and then, like, the little, um, like, plastic catcher underneath the dish rack that I have to, like, empty out because, uh, like, food juice has gotten onto it. This is really relatable. Yeah, he seems like human food juice. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's god-awful. 
Mm-hmm. So this it, is just one case study of an actress in yeah you know, this time period. Although, although, like what you said about her mom, I mean, enabling this behavior and and you know, for, arguably like forcing her into this world as well. It sounds a lot like uh, Audrey Hepburn's mom. My understanding mm-hmm. was like she was also like trying to keep her rail thin and she was the one who was like pushing her into movies in Hollywood and and her argument was like they had um they had come from World War to uh Holland or the Netherlands mm-hmm. and like okay well you know we we can't go back to that life we have to try and make things as good for ourselves as we can so if that means that you like don't eat anymore like you're permanently anorexic so that you look good on camera well that's just what we're going to do Audrey not yeah. her real name yeah, none yeah. of none of these are their real names, by the way. They just like constantly change their names. Everything has to fit an image. And so therefore you are constrained so so stars, everybody in this world has to sign like a long term contract. Mm-hmm. You're not signed for a movie, you're signed to a studio for something like seven years. Um and then the studio can choose to loan you out to other studios to make other films. Of course, there's huge, like, discrepancies for, like, women in their pay. Sometimes men who are being loaned to other studios are making, like, $200,000, where they are making $750 a day, Whoa. or uh, 13000 in comparison to the $200,000. Oh, my God. But they're doing the exact same job. They're getting up in front of the camera. They're, arguably, they're doing a lot harder job because, okay, right, as a male actor, you could be asked to do more, like, stunt work or... But not you in could, this time period. Okay, but like, as I'm sure as a male actor, you are also like trying to keep your weight down and you're trying to like, you know, maintain a certain image, et cetera, et cetera. But it just sounds so much harder for women. So it's hard for everybody because this this star system is all about image. So they have these morality contracts, mm. which they still have today, by the way. Um, But since people were playing, like, leading men and women, there were certain things that they were allowed to do and not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So they, for example, when Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney were on a film together, they had to to be seen out in public together, like, as friends. And other stars had to basically be seen as dating, and some even got married for promotional reasons. The very first, like, star was they wanted to know more about this woman, and I'm sorry, but her name completely escapes me. Um, And so the producer lied and said that, oh, her? Well, she just died in, like, a a street carriage accident. And so, like, this story caught on, wildfire, like, oh, like, young starlet dies in, like, street carriage accident. And then he comes out a couple months later and was like, psych like it's the story was completely wrong she's alive a wood chipper and incidentally she's starring in a new film oh christ i mean god uh, there's been some crazy pr campaigns over the years but like oh okay so did her family know uh i don't know I don't, that's literally it, i mean the it's only, not it's still not okay but like the only anecdote that i know about that So Garland was far from the only star that was controlled, demeaned, and destroyed by the studios. Many homosexual actors were forced into lavender marriages to hide their sexual orientation. Basically, either marry 
or leave the studio. I do like the sound of a lavender marriage because in my mind it just sounds like your house smells really fresh. Well, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, and like you and your partner, every five minutes you just look at each other and then you both go, and like you're you're in like a glade advert or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But it wasn't that fun. So some examples are Rudolph Valentino and Gene Acker. Gene Acker was suspected of being a lesbian, so they got married in 1919. Uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor in 1939. I believe both of them were suspected of being homosexual and or like bisexual. Right. Uh, Famed actor Rock Hudson was forced to marry his secretary, Phyllis Gates, in 1955. And in the 30s, an actor named William Haynes refused to hide his relationship with his partner. Haynes was contracted with MGM in the 1920s and 30s, while also living with a former sailor named Jimmy Shields. MGM would later tell him to either marry a woman or be dropped by MGM. He chose Jimmy Shields, and the two would open up an interior design business. Good for them. Yeah. Um, while we're uh, naming and shaming our souls of history, uh, so Rock Hudson was famously really good friends with the Reagans, with Nancy and Ronald, and when the AIDS epidemic hit America... Rock Hudson died of AIDS. Yeah, Rock Hudson died of AIDS, and, like, basically while he was on his deathbed, I think he had, like, travelled to Europe for experimental treatment. He was still pleading with Ronald Reagan to, like, uh, come out and talk about AIDS publicly so that, like, the medical profession could, like, move forward and do something mm-hmm. to, like, stem instead of this just epidemic. Demeaning everybody. Yeah, and... instead of making jokes about gay people and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, alternatively, studios would oppose marriages where they didn't appeal to their actor or actress's image. So, for example, Jean Harlow wasn't allowed to get married because she was seen as a sex symbol. She would eventually marry several times, but not to, like, actors, um, but to, like, a cameraman and, like, a producer, which was fine. I don't understand what the problem is, because um, a lot of the documentary uh, movies that I watch in my uh, alone time Mm -hmm. start with a woman saying, like, I can't, my husband isn't home, so I don't get what the problem is about a married woman, like, not being sexy. Doesn't make sense. Um... Mickey Rooney was told not to marry the sexy Ava Gardner because it would ruin his all-American boy image, but he basically told the studio, like, if you don't let me marry her, I'll quit. And so... I mean, fair. Yeah, but he's a man, so he's able to pull that leverage. Yeah. There was another actress that I remember reading about, but I can't find her name again. She... The studio told her not to get married. She got married anyway. So then, because of her contract, they forced her back to work 24 hours after she had gotten married. So she wasn't allowed to have a honeymoon. They they basically told her they didn't disapprove of the marriage, made her come back to work. It sounds very passive-aggressive on their part as well. I don't know if it's passive-aggressive so much as aggressive. Aggressive-aggressive, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so this is one of the worst ones. Oh, okay. Let me just prepare myself. Mm-hmm. Interracial relationships were, of course, out of the question. Okay. So there is, there's a young stylist named Kim Novak, um, and she and Sammy Davis, Sammy Davis Jr. were in love by all accounts. So okay. They had met at like, um, like a theater show or, or or something like that. So she's white, he's black. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
obviously Sammy Davis Jr., famous singer mm-hmm. and member of the Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. They would have private dinners at her house because of like they were so afraid of the press. Davis would hide under like a rug in the back of a car to be driven to her house. Under a rug? Like under a blanket or a rug, yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess that's a little bit less ridiculous. I thought you were going to say he would hide under a rug on her floor. And I was like, well, that's just... (laughs) No, in the car so that... (laughs) There he is. (laughs) So the newspaper reporters wouldn't get a whiff of this. Okay. And when she went to Chicago for Christmas, Davis was singing at Sinatra's club and Davis owed Sinatra a lot of money and Sinatra told him that he couldn't go to Chicago. So his plan, Sammy Davis Jr. had planned to go to Chicago to kind of like spend Christmas with Kim Novak and he was told that he couldn't go meet her, which caused Davis to beg this man named Arthur Silber to go in his stead and tell her, Sammy loves you. By the time Silber got into Chicago, uh, Sammy's mom, I think, Sammy's mother called and said, he's on the next flight. He'll be there. Like, somehow he managed to get on the next flight after Silber and go to Chicago anyway. So. Silbert was like, so I just, I flew all the way to Chicago just to be a couple hours ahead of him to say, Sammy loves you, and then leave. I mean, you could also, like, get a delicious deep dish pizza while you're there. I'm sure, sure. Chicago, you, like, go to a Cubs game. Um, They've got that iconic skyline. So don't, come on, Silbert. Like, there's tons of stuff that you could do in Chicago. Yeah, I love it. No, I'm kidding. I've never been to Chicago. I'm sure it's great. So when Harry Conan, Harry Cohen another asshole of history, the president of Columbia, found out about this relationship. When you say president of Columbia, you mean the production, not the South American country. Not Colombia. (laughs) Okay, president of Columbia, Columbia. not not Colombia. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So the president of Columbia Pictures found out about their relationship. He ordered a hit on Sammy. Holy Christ. So... It's a bit confusing because basically Harry Cohen has ties to the mob, but obviously so does the Rat Pack. So it's unclear whether this hit would actually go through. And Cohen didn't want them to kill Sammy. He wanted he he wanted them to break Davis's legs and maybe like put out his eye. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! Um, do one or the other. Yeah, it's it's pretty horrific and reportedly like. Davis was afraid enough of this that he carried, like, a gun with him at all times. Like, they were checking, like, the hotel rooms when they were, like, checking the whole suite and the suites next door. He was, he was afraid. I mean, you know me, I'm not really pro-firearms for, for individual citizens and everything, but if I heard that someone was coming for my knees and my eyes, like, I'd be carrying a gun as well. Yeah, it's I'd be carrying two guns. And so, like, Cohen gave him an ultimatum. Either marry a black girl within 24 hours, Uh or I'll set the mob on you, basically. God. So So it wasn't even enough to break off the relationship. He's like, you have to go start another relationship with somebody that you're not in love with. Mm -hmm. Get married. Oh, Christ. Okay. So... Um, Sammy had this one way out, so he paid a singer named Lorraine White to marry him for a year. 
So he he picked her out. I think this was in like Las Vegas or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she she was a single mother of a young girl, and he was like, "All right, I will pay you like X amount of money, and you will become like Mrs. Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. You'll have all everything that you could want. You'll have the house. You'll have all of the benefits of being my wife, but." I won't really be your husband. So he starts this. So she's like a beard, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he just like starts this marriage of convenience just to get the get this hitman off yeah. his back. Reportedly, Kim Novak and Sammy Davis Jr. continued the relationship for a while. And I know that only because like Lorraine uh, White kind of complained to Arthur Silver about like, he's never here. He's always with that Kim. I mean, like, what what do you... I, I'm sorry, lady, but yeah. what do you want? Somebody, what did you expect? Somebody like, it was going to be, a, like, a romance blossoming. Yeah, somebody just rocks up and they're like, I'm going to pay for you to, like, basically pose with me in public. And if anybody asks, are you married? Be like, yeah, to Sammy Davis Jr. He's here all the time. He's in the back. Sammy. Yes, honey? Uh, the reporters are here. Okay, we'll tell them I'm in the bathtub. And it's like, I'm really sorry he can't come to the door right now but he is here and we are married okay thank you for coming bye 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 yeah so obviously this is horrific basically cohen had said that nobody will come to see a film of a white leading lady who's married to a black man and that's the reason why he he basically threatened sammy's life sammy davis jr's life and it's it's just insane the stuff that they got away with in in addition, like many actresses were forced to have abortions even when they wanted to have the baby because okay. being mothers would not be would not suit their image. And these were women who would be in like long-term marriages. Right. And they would have to lie to their hu- to their husbands and say like I slipped and fell. Okay. And like miscarried. Okay. Um and guess what? Including poor Judy Garland again, who had two abortions that were arranged by her mother. Oh my god, just leave Judy get It's like, I can't... I'm already not a fan of The Wizard of Oz. I find it creepy. I think it looks weird. But, like, a lot of people legit love that movie. That's, like, their favorite Christmas movie to watch. I can't even think about that film anymore. That poor woman... It's absolutely ridiculous. It really flips that that scene at the end where she like wakes up in her bed in Kansas and she's like, and you were there and you were there. Sides like much more accusative now. I'm like, and you were there and you were <laughs> you there. Son of a bitch. You were pouring pills down my throat and you were calling me a fat pig. And oh God. Yeah, I think she also got married to a gay man in order to help him hide his sexuality. And she would later go on to tell her daughter, like, you should marry gay men. They make the best husbands. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not going to make any comments, positive or negative, because you know who you should marry? Someone that you love and care about? They make the best husbands. We would I, hope if, so. If you're um, a gay man, yes, you should marry a gay man. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> Uh, other people, you should just marry people that you care about and can stand to be around. Yeah. yeah. Provide um, you with security. So, yeah, this uh, this abortion thing also affected Loretta Young, who was pregnant with Clark Gable's baby mm-hmm. at the time. She went abroad to hide the fact that she was pregnant, gave birth to her baby, put the baby up for adoption, and then adopted her own baby. 
so that she could still have her biological child. That's horrible, but smart. <laughs> yeah. Smart. <laughs> Way to get around the system, Loretta. Yeah, thinking three moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, fucked up, <laughs> but... What is that meme with um, Dave Chappelle? It's like, modern problems require modern solutions. Oh, God. Adopting your own baby. Yep. So um, there are obviously loads of other examples in which this golden age or classic age of Hollywood fucked over people's lives. Mm -hmm. But it did eventually come to an end. And it mainly came came to an end with antitrust actions and the invention of television. So each studio had exclusive contracts with actors and directors, owned the theaters where their movies played, worked with each other to control how movies were shown in independent theaters, and in some cases owned the companies that processed the film. Because the studios had formed such a monopoly, the Supreme Court ruled in United States versus Paramount on May 4th, 1948, finding that the studios had violated antitrust laws, or basically monopoly laws. Mm-hmm. The outcome meant the studios had to give up their theaters and they would then release actors from these long-term contracts. So after the rise of television, fewer films were being made and there were even fewer successes. Some films like Ben-Hur and Singing in the Rain in the 50s found acclaim, but many of the studios were being bought up. And, you know, our old friend Louis B. Meyer, you know, the asshole impossible pedo yeah was yeah. fired in 1951 just some semi good news for you i mean i i'd like to believe that he uh he, he died destitute yeah he had to like clear out his desk and put everything in a little cardboard box but he probably his parachute was oh, probably yeah. pretty gold colored mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. yeah i'm sure mm-hmm. so the film industry would obviously rise again otherwise how would we be able to suffocate ourselves under the sheer number of marvel movies how would we have ever got to transformers 18 i want to say fast and the furious 29 you're not far off you, i know we're joking honestly like I'm, I'm, you know, I used to be a real cinephile. I used to go to the cinema every week to watch whatever was out at the time. And even though we've gone through this massive pandemic and everything, and it's meant like getting out to the cinema is either impossible or, or highly impractical, I don't really miss it that much because I do think we're kind of, maybe we're in the golden age of television right now. Yeah, I think there are still some amazing films being made Jojo Rabbit, for one, is an incredible movie if you haven't watched that. Mm -hmm. Some good, like, independent films, but for the most part, it's just a load of... And I know everybody says this all the time. They're like, oh, it's just, like, remakes and sequels, but it really feels true. Yeah, it just feels like there's... Risk um, adverse. With TV, especially if you look at, like, the Netflix formula... You look at a thumbnail for a TV show and it's like, genuinely, what what the fuck even is this? Like, you know, there'll be the brief synopsis, but the one thing that it has going for it is that, you know, generally speaking, these are unusual tales that aren't being told elsewhere. Whereas when you go to the cinema, it's like, odds are you're going to watch like an action movie about, like, you know, like a spy or you're going to watch like another superhero movie or you're going to, you know. Or the same romantic comedy. Yeah, uh, and it's just, like, as much as I appreciate these films for what they are, it's just difficult when there is that lack of originality out there. And I get it, because it's a big money-making... It's a gamble, I think, more than anything else. You can win big, you can also lose really big. 
Well, so this kind of rise of Hollywood again came about because they realized that they would have to gamble in order to get viewers again. Mm-hmm. So the late 60s brought about a kind of new Hollywood mm-hmm. is the term um, with the release of Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate and Easy Rider in the late 60s. Uh, filmmakers knew that they had to take risks in order to get people out of the comfort of their homes and the lullaby of the TV. Yeah. Just like all the risks we take today. Exactly. <laughs> but that really did give us some like pretty iconic mm-hmm. uh, movies that are still like referenced to this day. I mean, you're talking about the era that gave us the likes of uh, Apocalypse Now and the same era that gave, uh, gave us the likes of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which are really kind of unusual concepts and shot in really unusual ways. And, you know, I always, I often think about like when I was a kid, one of the, uh, my favorite thing to do with my friends is just like quote movie lines at each other, mm-hmm. just like firing off movie quotes. And then Anchorman came out and we, you know, and then that just became kind of obnoxious and we didn't realize how obnoxious it was at the time. But the point is you can't really do that as much nowadays because things just don't remain in the zeitgeist for as long. Yeah, there's uh, fewer big hits. Yeah, there are fewer big hits. Um, Yeah, yeah, which is kind of sad. But anyway, so... Those were our two golden ages, our two, as it turns out, vastly different golden ages. And at the top of this episode, uh, we were pitching different episode ideas, and I think one of them was uh, mini show, big ideas. We definitely shouldn't call that uh, no, call it that because definitely not mini. Uh, we we have this might be our longest show thus far, over two hours. So um, we hope you've enjoyed it. Haven't fallen asleep. Yeah. Uh, Maybe take some pep pills to stay awake. Yeah, and then get your mum to give you some diners to put you to sleep, and then you can just be on that amazing thrill ride. Um, yeah. Enter the rabbit hole does not endorse taking amphetamines and or pet pills. Do what you want, just do it safely, and don't do it because, you know, one of your parents is basically selling you, you into indentured <laughs> servitude, so... Shall we, uh, do our fun fact? Oh, 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 yeah. Um... Why don't you go first, and I'll try and think of a fun fact, (laughs) because I completely forgot about this. Okay, so um, my fun fact is that one of Hollywood's first heartthrobs in the silent film era was actually an Asian American, a Japanese man named Sasu Hayakawa. Okay. Hayakawa. So... He sounds dreamy already. He, I mean, his pictures, he has that kind of, like, stern look about him, but he's like, you know... Dark hair, dark eyes. Everybody has dark eyes in that period because it's I black and white. I really wish the listeners at home could have seen the look on your face when you said stern. He has that stern <laughs> look about him. It was good. Uh-huh. Um, so, because obviously he's a person of color, you know, non-white, or That's they were unable means, yes. to whitewash him, oh, you know, God. as they did to many actors. He always played the villain. He wasn't allowed to win the woman at the end of the movie, but female audiences loved him nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like Tom Hiddleston Loki vibe. Okay, you know? sure. Sure, sure, sure. According to Art and Artifice, which is a, a University of Chicago magazine, mm-hmm. 
In the 1915 film The Cheat, Hayakawa's coolly wicked Japanese ivory merchant lends money to an American socialite who has gambled away Red Cross funds entrusted to her. When she attempts to repay him in cash instead of the more personal compensation she'd promised, Hayakawa's lecherous villain brands her bare shoulder with the mark he uses to identify all his possessions. Oh my. The scene elicited screams of ecstasy from the audience, and some women even fainted. Oh my god. Sounds like that time I, I got taken to watch uh, Magic Mike XXL, and there was like a, like a bridal party in the <laughs> front row. Yeah, I mean, you're not far off. Yeah, um, except except that, but in every single scene until you're like, we're trying to watch a film here. Come on. I'm trying to follow this intellectual storyline. Go on, Channing. <laughs> um, so he was obviously subjected to a lot of racism and mm-hmm. anti-Japanese sentiment because nothing can ever be good. Um, and even in Japan, he wasn't well liked since he portrayed Japanese people as villains. Mm. And it wasn't until his part in Bridge Over the River Kwai in 1957 that he was basically recognized he was nominated for an academy award and Mm -hmm. for the first time he got to play a decent character in his 70s jeez louise on the subject of him always having to play the villain i guess if he were in a modern movie he would never be allowed to use an iphone or Mm. apple product on screen Look it up, it's a real thing. Um, that's not my fun fact, but the I guess the fun fact that I'll give you, uh, amongst the automata that we were talking about, one of the devices that I saw was like a large-scale, I guess, not an irrigation system, but like a plowing system, which would have been powered by an underground water source. So we're talking about the, the Bano, uh, uh, Bano Musa, yeah, <laughs> um, that that famous boy band also came up with a book of ingenious devices. So they have this plowing system, and essentially it's being powered by uh, water engineering, like a lot of their devices. And apparently in the designs, they attached a donkey or an ox to it, not because it needed to be powered by a donkey or an ox, but to stop citizens thinking that they were witnessing some kind of magic or witchcraft oh my god (laughs) yeah you gotta keep it just dumb enough for the dum-dums to stop thinking that you're like a warlock yeah well anyway we hope you've enjoyed today's episode thank you so much for listening if you like the show please give us a like give us a follow and leave a review this has been enter the rabbit hole as always reminding you to not treat people like people i don't know yeah not um, force abortions or go against interracial marriages if you have a child maybe don't aim for them to be a child star because that doesn't seem to pan out too well Mm -hmm. and um you know maybe kind of look into history and see who our true uh heroes of innovation are yeah and if you're gonna have a lavender marriage then just fill your house with lavender and just wear like lavender colored items because that sounds interestingly anyway anyway take care for now guys bye bye ciao enter the rabbit hole is written and presented by william grant and alicia palmer the music was created by glenn marshall more information and sources can be found in the episode description you can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.